It is Kira back with the Inking of Immunity podcast, and I know you've been waiting eagerly for part two of our interview with Dr. Matt Lauder. So here it is. Um, We're just going to hop right back in to where we left off, and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. All right. So as you're talking about injectable cocaine, (sighs) I'm thinking about all the backlash right now that you see in the industry for people using these numbing creams. I'm also thinking about I sit on Spotify at night and read these old books about country blues and stuff. And it makes it sound so old until you see it from a different vantage and realize this, all this stuff was going on at the same time, 70, not, not too long ago, right. At a time when there was just this upheaval in popular culture in so many threads. And so what it sounds like is a lot of times we tend to disconnect the tattooing from everything else that's going on in the world. So McDonald was the first British tattoo artist to be featured in the kind of street directory, like in the phone book, I suppose. That's not a useful thing to say anymore, is it? Because people don't know what phone books are anymore, but you know what I mean. So beginning of every year, the London Post Office street directory had a kind of new categories for this year. And you can get a sense of the kind of things that are happening because like tattoo artist is there, but so it's like golf ball manufacturer, right? And a huge amount of the kind of, uh, professionalization of tattooing comes with this uh, mecha- this intersection with like the invention of electrical handheld devices. So first in the US, there's this adaptation of like dental pluggers, these electric tools for filling teeth. And like, like tattooing is only comprehensible in the contexts in which it emerges, right? Um, but this desire, particularly by people who, who write about tattooing in, in quite a historical way, a way disconnected from history, sort of miss and i also don't want to say that actually these other approaches you know looking at tattooing psychologically or whatever or sociologically aren't useful ways of doing it i think they really are but so often those accounts are built on this completely like erroneous or partial history um like if you if you assume that tattooing is a kind of deviant practice then your psychological account of it is going to be different to one that is a bit more fully rounded um sorry i found this quote finally sorry just to go back to this so This is from 1897. So the journalist said, I asked him whether the fashion, for of course it is a fashion, was not gradually getting more prevalent. There he had no decided opinion. It was difficult to have one. Numbers of people got tattooed, but whether the number was greater one year as compared with the previous year, who could tell? For himself, he did not want to see the thing become quite common. What was common was apt to be regarded as vulgar. Meanwhile, the artistic tattooist found his clients among the best people. Tattooist in 1897 saying tattooing's far too hip now. I liked it when it was cool. I love that. <laughs> oh, one of the things that popped to me in reading like these old blues books is that it, it arose at a period when Sears Roebuck started sending out these catalogs and you could get a cheap guitar in it. Right. And so what you're talking about is like the technology, catalog culture, and really a, an emerging middle class, right? Are able to consume yeah. a variety of things and I remember seeing some of those uh, McDonald, I think it's a duck, duck hunting scene on the back of these, these rich folks. Yeah. And I think it was in the Albert Perry book, which is from like the 1920s. Yeah. And so what I want to highlight that you're saying here is the impression that tattooing is sort of this bizarre thing on an island. Because when you read his book, 
later the research book or the marks of civilization, they pull tattooing out of the cultural context and you have these signposts along the road. And it, I wonder if you could speak to that as an issue. Yeah, I mean, that is exactly right. So what is a bit frustrating, again, from my point of view, is that this stuff is there, actually, as you said. Certainly, like the stuff about bankers getting tattooed in New York in the Great Depression is in Parry, for example, right? He was there documenting that. But what people don't do is put that in context. And so what people have done with that information is then gone, oh, well, it went away. Tattooing disappeared. Then you kind of put that into a longer history. It's even more egregious. So for a long time... Um, even very prominent historians of the Pacific were like, tattooing was discovered by Captain Cook, right? Then they discover about pilgrim tattooing and they go, oh, everyone forgot about tattooing between 1660 and 1760. Like, did they? Does that make sense? And then you get, right, so the most recent example, and like, I don't want to dunk on Nick Thomas really, because he's the, the most egregious spreader of this, but I don't really blame him. He's a, not a historian of tattooing, though he's written a lot about Pacific tattooing, much of which is very good in general, but where he tries to expand it, we end up with problems. So in his like earlier book, he says like tattooing was discovered in the Pacific. Um, Anna Friedman, my colleague, has a whole chapter in her PhD thesis about this. She calls it the Cook myth. So when Anna and others like pointed out to Nick Thomas that actually there's a much longer history of tattooing, his more recent book, he basically says, oh, well, whilst tattooing is an origin myth, right? Because it has a long and complex history. In, in one sense, tattooing was discovered in Cook's first voyage. So it's like, it sort of feels like he discovered it, even though he didn't. And it's like, no. So we've got mentions of tattooing in Marco Polo, which is translated into English in 1579. Many of the things in that, the travels aren't in the first translated edition, but there is at least one. Then we've got like tattooed Native North Americans brought to Europe, which is another whole weird story that I can't work out why everyone seems to forget about it. We've got pilgrimage accounts in the 16th and 17th centuries. In literally like a month after the Endeavour voyages left London, there was a tattooed woman called Mikak who was brought to London and introduced to the Queen and painted for the Royal Academy. There are anthrop anthropologies of the Tyrolean Alps from 1754, talking about permanent marking on the bodies of migrant children. There are court and colonial gazettes, which talk about um, skin marking. And there's doc record books. Um, this is in another PhD thesis by a woman called Joanna White in the 1760s. So it's not called tattooing. It's called marking or pricking or staining. There's, but like tattooing is really there. So you then have to go, well, but tattooing really took off after the Cook voyages. And you go, well, mm, it's also coincident with this massive thing called the Napoleonic Wars where they start record keeping. So, okay, oh, you can't find accounts of surveilled bodies before then. Oh, so you assume that's when it started? No, right? And then even if you look at those records properly, no one in those records is getting Pacific tattooing. They're all getting hearts and anchors and mermaids, exactly the same things that these earlier accounts tell us are getting, they're getting tattooed with. Not a single person, you know, in, in a, a normal Jack Tar is getting Pacific tattooing. Obviously some of the officers did, some of the people who went to Tahiti did, but like there's no sustained impact. In fact, what's really interesting is how little Pacific tattooing impacts on Western tattooing. And all of that is precisely because as you said, people don't want to put that into context. Like it seems to me really obvious that 
if you look at the kind of things that those 18th century sailors were getting tattooed, they're exactly the same things. They're engraving into their cartouches and their tobacco tins. But that's only a question that makes sense if you think about it as a visually embedded set of practices rather than as some kind of appropriation of the exotic or whatever. So you mentioned something just just a little while ago there about um, the association with like deviancy and tattooing. Yeah. And so I'm a psychologist and I'm really interested in why that perception is there. So God, right about a year ago now I started going, right, I'm going to do a scoping review. I'm going to go through all of the psychological literature about this because I think psychology literature generally about tattooing is really rubbish. You know, we see these comparisons between tattooed people and non-tattooed people on like, you know, personality or something. And you're like, what kind of a comparison is that? To just compare tattooed people. Anyway, so I started going back through all of this literature and we, we were sitting looking through it together and everything from as far back as I could find in psychology just talks about deviancy. It's, and, and there's no explanation yeah. about why that is. It's almost just implicit. It's just built in it from the rationale from the beginning. It's like something that wasn't yeah. questioned. And I just wondered if you had any kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, so so again, this is, I think, something that makes more sense if, in historical context. So the emergence of, of criminology as a discipline is parallel with scientific racism, basically, right? Eugenics, this idea that people's bodies reflect their personalities. And that is essentially what's going on, really. Um, the initial versions of that for tattooing are obviously, you know, Lombroso and Lacassania. Lombroso, who says tattoos are the stigmata of the criminal man. If a tattooed man dies at liberty, it was only a matter of time before he would have committed a crime. Right? You can see in that the kind of problem, because there's an assumption that if you're tattooed, you're a criminal. And if you're not a criminal, well, you would have been eventually. And the problem with his research, and Gemma has written about this, is that he basically goes to a prison and surveys tattooing amongst prisoners. And it's like, oh, there's loads of tattoos in prison. That must mean that tattooing is a criminal act. But of course, he doesn't even go and sort of survey tattooing in the general population because he doesn't need to. So the, the, the basic research methodology under all that is the problem. But like those real associations doesn't really take hold in, in Britain, at least. Partly because like the King of England was tattooed, you know, um, and quite well known. That association doesn't really kick in until the Second World War, after the Second World War. And then what I think is interesting for psychological research, actually, is that even people that are like, tattoos are these expressions of selfhood, they're ways in which I communicate who I am. It's the same idea that we can read on our bodies who we are as people. And of course, like there's some truth to that, right? But I think the error, weirdly, of those 19th century criminologists is present in even like quite celebratory and auditory modern psychological research. And there's a book by Nikki Sullivan called Tattooed Bodies, where she talks about this in some detail. She calls it dermal diagnosis, this move. The example that she gives in there is a guy who had his hands tattooed with hate while he was in prison. And uh, he's out of prison, he's reformed. And someone says, what do your tattoos mean? He says, oh, hey, it stands for happiness all through eternity. And this idea that like tattoos don't have fixed meanings, that actually they're contingent, um, I think is really, really, again, one of these very basic errors that people make in tattoo scholarship.
Yeah, and I think, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I don't think the kind of why people get tattooed question is very interesting. It's like, why do people paint? Like, I want to know what they did and, and the context in which that happened and the effects that had and what that tells us. You know, I think um, in my paper about uh, Georgian fleet tattooing, I sort of say, like, tattoos really can't tell us very much about individuals, certainly not in history, but they can tell us a lot about cultures. The other good thing about criminology, actually, I'll just tell you this story. So there was, there's lots of stories in the late 19th, and early 20th century London newspapers about a gang of tattooed thieves called the 40 Thieves Gang, right? And they were known because they had their mark of the 40 thieves, which was a tattoo. But in every single, every single one of these articles, it's a, the mark of the 40 thieves is different. And it gets to the point where I think it like, just before the First World War, it might be slightly later than that. There's this interview with a copper that's like, this gang doesn't exist. It's just lots of tattooed people who happen to be committing crime. And we'd assumed that they were all part of some gang because they had dots on their hands or their names of their boyfriends and girlfriends or whatever. But journalism and, and kind of poor policing had sort of assumed all these people were part of a gang. And of course, like that's again, that still happens. <laughs> That's amazing. That is like what's happened in psychology research. It's just tattooed people. Therefore, they must all be the same. Yeah. It's all the same. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. As I said, tattooing is a medium, not a phenomenon, you know, and like that's really the only way to make sense of the fact that like the example, again, the examples I use are like someone tattooing themselves at the back of a classroom with a pencil sharpener blade or someone traveling to Japan to get a back piece. Like they're the same technology, and it may be interesting to talk about them in comparison, actually, but they're not the same thing. <laughs> like, and I don't mean one's better than the other or one's, you know, they're just not the same thing. I was just gonna ask about this stigma that's, <laughs> that's being associated with tattooing. And <clears throat> I think it was the BBC piece about your exhibit that noted this stigma associated with tattooing and how it really came about after World War II. Yeah. So. I'm kind of of the opinion that people like me and, and us are sometimes reifying what is a really a longer trend of waxing and waning on the cultural emphasis of tattooing yeah. on a larger time scale. So I was just wondering what you, what you thought about that. Yeah, so look, I think what changes, and this, this is again, I think something that's enabled by a kind of art historical or like material culture approach is that tattooing reflects the cultures around it, right? Like any kind of visual or material culture practice does. And so certainly what changes is what people get tattooed, the designs people get tattooed with, the kind of cultural context of tattooing do change over time. Um, what happens really in the aftermath of World War II, I think two things happen. Well, three things happen actually, three things happen. So the first one is that there's lots of tattooing happening but the only tattooing that's visible, like I said earlier on, is on people who are digging the roads, right? So lots of people in the forces were tattooed. There were queues around the block uh, on Armist Day in World War One. There were queues around the block for tattooing throughout World War Two, and, and tattooers made a lot of money and a lot had made a lot of business uh, during the the forties. And so um, there's a lot of tattooing around, but most of it isn't visible. The other, the other two things that happen are, are, are more contextual. So the other thing is, is the Holocaust, of course, and stories emerging about tattoo concentration camp numbers just really puts tattooing in a really particularly stigmatizing place uh, in the public imagination. 
and in fact lots of tattooers like George Burchett for example was removing or covering up Holocaust tattooing and there were stories about that in the newspapers so that kind of that real visceral horrific uh, language that emerged from the the Holocaust is also gives tattooing a bit of a bad name uh, and then the other thing is just fashions are changing right so if you look at everything in the 1950s you look at clothing car design furniture design modernism right people don't want victorian and art deco chintzy stuff anymore and so the desire to kind of look like that just doesn't fit into contemporary fashions of that time at that moment in time you know that is a real important era for professionalization of tattooing in britain and around the world so les Scoos, uh, starts the bristol tattoo club in an 1953 I think or 54 and um, he's still like out there banging the drum for tattooing as an art form the point being you know this is a story which yeah psychologically anthropologically doesn't make much sense but sort of art historically and, and and cultural historically makes makes real sense to me so even at this moment which I've called I called in my exhibition the darkest days for tattooing there's still a real core of people championing it as an artistic practice and and reports in the newspapers saying just how trendy it was. So last question, for the sake of time, I could talk with and at you all day. I feel like we could do this like over dinner with beers. This would be, and this would be the kind of thing we could chat long into the night about. You know, man, I have, I have great, I have schemes. So <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, it's going to happen. Um, so there are a lot of books out there that we could take a swing at. But you, in at least one article, choose modern primitives, and I wonder if you could tell us why. Well, I guess I, I guess I take a swing less at modern primitives than at the academic reception to that book, really, or as I say in the article, to the first chapter, <laughs> because no one seems to bother to read it. Like you, like that book was really important and influential for me. It came out in 1989, was important into Britain, was you know part of a really important cultural moment in Britain uh, as well as around the world introduce people to all kinds of things um, I think it's you know it's clumsy you know this idea again uh, of treating tattooing as this phenomenon which you can mash together doesn't seem to make sense if you look more closely at what was going on so the book itself as I said in that article like includes interviews with Ed Hardy and Cliff Raven um, another really important queer artistically trained tattooer actually um, it includes uh, Bill Salmon and even the tattooers who are doing stuff that is a bit more quote unquote primitive like Leo Zulueta are not doing things in the kind of ideological mode of Fakir. I don't think it really makes sense to call modern primitives a movement. It's certainly a group of people who identified with that label, probably more in San Francisco than anywhere else. But I don't think it ever had any like the ideology of it, I guess, didn't really have a huge amount of heft. I think the visual, the, certainly the kind of aesthetics of it did. But I don't think there are many people, even in the book it, itself, who would call themselves modern primitives. Yeah. And I think, you know, what really was uh, interesting from a historical point of view, looking at that book and looking at its reception, is that people did really seize upon it as a kind of template of what was possible. But very few people really absorbed it as an ideological text but if you look at the way that sociologists have written about it they treat it as if it's this bible and i don't think anybody treated it as a bible um yeah you know even fakir's closest circle wouldn't have treated it as a bible because there's people in there in the book who explicitly like, including ed hardy 
most prominently who explicitly disagree with him. So, yeah, it's weird. And the scholarship on it is indicative of all these wider problems we've been talking about. I think I'm a little too close um, because I graduated high school the year it came out. It just felt like one of many things that were trying to capitalize on Ed Hardy's tattoo time and some stuff that came before. Right. Yeah, obviously the cover of the first tattoo time, well, you can't call that primitive because it's got a big freaking neon, neon purple snake over the top of it like it's it's postmodern is what i call it because again it's it's again coincident with what's happening in broader visual culture people are taking bits from all over the place and mashing them together and seeing what happens ideologically probably quite clumsily in many cases but yeah abs- absolutely like you know even arnold rubin does this a bit right in Marxist civilization because he spends this whole book like talking about traditional tattooing and then sort of gets to the renaissance period and sort of yeah drops the ball i think for not noticing exactly that history that you're talking about from the 70s yeah and what i love is that you're pointing out some of the many non-academic types who have been collecting this art history along the way that are that are being forgotten there have been tattoo history archives and museums well before the sort of scholarly ascent here in the last few years that have been documenting this stuff pretty extensively. And, and I see Instagram accounts that have our treasure troves of wonderful stories and photos. Oh yeah, and that's just the stuff they want to share. I mean, the stuff they don't want to share is even better. But <laughs> um, I mean, so this is the point, right? Like there are no real sort of good collections uh, of tattoo history as contiguous histories there's a couple like the the collection at um, mystic seaport museum for example that nick schoenberg has worked on a bit is is probably the best and there's smatterings of things here and there like there was a the uh, horniman museum which is the anthropology museum in, in london the curator there went down the london dockyards in 1911 and bought a dockyard tattoo machine it's catalogued uh sequentially with some tahitian tools they'd acquired so clearly he was doing some kind of comparative collecting there so there's been interest in tattooing, but virtually nothing, for example, of Sutherland MacDonald's work survives. So the photographs of his work that I found were things that he'd lodged himself in the um, copyright library to try and copyright on the photographs. But huge amounts of this stuff is missing. And we're so indebted to, to collectors who have, who have saved this stuff and kept it safe. You know, all of um, George Burchett's stuff ended up in America with Lyle Tuttle, because no one in Britain wanted it, didn't care in 1954. Uh, actually, it was a bit later than that that Tuttle acquired it and he got it from Leslie. But, you know, in the 70s even, people didn't give a shit about this stuff. So, so much of this stuff is missing. And what that means is it's just not there for academics to talk about. And then on the flip side, um, obviously, for all the amazing work and most of the good work on tattoo history is done by amateurs, the problem is, obviously, that amateurs don't have historical training and also they've been reading the same flawed books that everyone else has been and so they often are unable to put this even the stuff they own in in a better context i think like what i've been trying to do with my exhibition making over the past few years is try and be a kind of broker if that's the right term between these collectors who are who are very jealously guard the things they collect as well that's also an interesting set of problems and these institutions of you know academic publishing and and scholarship because those people are suspicious and right and of course they should be and in fact in some sense it's outright hostile um to academic research there's an amazing 
paper that came out a few years ago in a management studies journal that was written by a very young junior management studies scholar and it was a kind of meditation on 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 access to materials she wanted to do a phd about the kind of business of tattooing basically and she describes in this paper like oh i no one would let me like look at their accounts i even like i even tried wearing dms and like heavy metal t-shirts and they still wouldn't let me in right so she went and did a phd about luthiers instead <laughs> but and i think it's, it takes time and it takes patience, it takes empathy and it takes embeddedness in the cultures we're talking about to try and bridge these gaps. And I think what's really been really interesting over the last decade, you know, my generation of tattoo scholars, you know, all of us try and be proximate rather than sort of anthropologically distant from the things we're writing about. And I think obviously there are risks to that as a set of research methods, but I think it's only through doing that that we're even going to get access to the things that we need to get access to. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, just before, I guess, we, we head off, I was wondering where your research is taking you next? Like, what's, what's on the horizon? Good. Well, good question. So I'm writing a book um, for uh, a big, massive trade publisher, so a sort of big popular book, which isn't really a book of tattoo history, but it's a book about history told through the lens of tattooing. So I've got like a series of biographical vignettes um, which use tattoos as ways into other stories from patriotism in China to child abuse in early 20th century New York. Uh, I still need to write the kind of tattoo art history book that I've been trying to put together for a long time. And actually really what I do want to do is I want to kind of square this circle of comparative tattoo studies basically. Because as I said, I don't think it is necessarily appropriate to compare the stuff that I am expert in with the stuff that um, someone like Sean and Sebastian are expert in, right? Just because they are the same technologies. But what I do think is appropriate to connect those things together is actually in this kind of framework of intangible cultural heritage. So this thing coming out of UNESCO, which helps try and think about how things like song and food and poetry and, and oral history and stuff can be preserved. And I think what does connect uh, tattooing across culture and across time is its ephemerality. Um, and I think that is probably the way to go forward. It will help us better think about how we're documenting these things, but it will also, I think, help avoid these quite complicated and quite clumsy cross-cultural comparisons that, that happen. Um, so that's what I'm doing. Yeah, hopefully more exhibitions. I've also been really lucky that the work's been quite useful to people in some senses. You know, I've been chatting to lawyers in Japan and I've been chatting to various people. So yeah, just, you know, keep I'm going to keep reading stuff and telling people about them. So thank you for giving me another opportunity to do that. Thanks for coming on. It was really insightful for me. I, oh, I, thank I, you. I took a lot away from this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, we, we we are super grateful. And our next several guests are actually some of the uh, indigenous tattoo scholars who are Amazing. working on Square in the Circle in their own ways. And so you, you touch on some themes that are important to us too. So we want to thank you for helping us connect a lot of open gaps and dots in our own knowledge. I, well, I, will, know, I will know that my work is done when I can go and see at a tattoo convention, a hand tapping, hand tattooing, uh, you know, thing which hitherto has had um, kind of people doing 
Tahitian and Samoan tattooing. If there's someone there in a white doctor's coat and a vial of cocaine doing like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, all right. <laughs> it's, it's... Let's sort it out. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so Thank much. You, Thanks, guys. See you later. Thanks, Matt. Good to meet you. That soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can follow this show on Twitter at inking underscore immunity and on Instagram and Facebook at inking.of.immunity. The hosts of the show are moi, Chris Lynn, along with Dr. Becky Owens and Mike Smetana. A huge thanks to our guest today, Dr. Matt Lauder. And also thanks to everyone who helps make these episodes possible. Patricia Arnett, Julius Bonholtz, and our newest production manager, Kira Lancy. Thanks, Kira. See you next time.